Hello, my name's Lindsay Searle. I run the um, women's ministry here at Tungabi Baptist Church. And I've got the pleasure today to do our reading. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, we have some up the back of the church. It is our gift to you. So please grab one. The reading today is from Luke 22, verses 39 to 65. So that's Luke 22, 39 to 65. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnest, and his sweat was drops of blood falling on the ground. When he rose from prayer, he went back to his disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was speaking, to a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike down with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, and when he came, and when some had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there at the fire. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the crystal crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord who had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking him and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophecy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. I try to keep your Bibles open to that page. 
Um, as we said, we are continuing our series on the Gospel of Luke, and it should take us uh, just right after Easter, uh, and then we'll start a new series, new series after that. Uh, but before I begin, let me start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that through your word, we will hear the message that we, needed, we need to hear today. And we ask, Lord, that this message will transform us and renew us and encourage us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me begin by reading one of the most uh, dramatic scenes in C.S. Lewis' book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, it's the part when the creator of Narnia, the great lion, Aslan, surrendered himself to the white witch. And it says in the book, a great crowd of people were standing all around the stone table. And though the moon was shining, many of them carried torches, which burned with evil-looking red flames and black smoke. But such people, ogres with monstrous teeth, and wolves and bull-headed men, spirits of evil trees and poisonous plants, and other creatures with whom I won't describe, because if I did, the grown-ups would probably not let you read this book. Cruels and hags, and incubuses, wraiths and horrors, efforts, sprites, Orkneys, Wooses, and Etins. And right in the middle, standing by the table, was the witch herself. And then it continues on. Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies. But it never came. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. They rolled the huge lion over on his back and tied all his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise. Even when the enemies straining and tugging pulled the cords so tight that they could cut into his flesh, then they began to drag him towards, towards the stone table. Stop, said the, said the witch. Let him first be shaved. Now, if you are a big fan, there is no doubt it's one of the most dramatic and the most saddest part of C.S. Lewis' book in, in, that, um, in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I'm certain that many kids would have cried reading that part where the great Aslan, the, the creator of Narnia, surrendered himself. And we know that when C.S. Lewis wrote this, he was alluding to the time of Jesus' arrest, which we're about to look at today. And the picture that we have in the book and in the Bible is when the great king of the universe gave up his power and was humiliated and he faced a terrible death. See, in verse 53, Jesus perfectly describes this time. He said to the people arresting him, but this is your hour when darkness reigns, meaning when darkness is winning, or so it seems. Because even though darkness was winning at this hour, it was the game changer of all eternity. But see, in this passage, we can see that darkness is playing out really in three areas, which will be our three main points. And we can see that in these three main points, how Jesus also restores this darkness. And the three things we're gonna look at today is, one, the darkness in the world, how the world rejects Jesus. Secondly, the darkness in our hearts, how we so-called Christians in a way rejects Jesus as well. And thirdly, darkness in, in eternity, uh, which when the father rejects Jesus, but really the solution to all this darkness. So darkness in the world, 
darkness in our hearts and darkness in eternity. So let's begin with the first one. Firstly, we can clearly see that Jesus is facing a lot of opposition at this time. And the story clearly points out that everyone who doesn't like Jesus somehow all gangs up together. They all gather together to, to get rid of him. See, at the start of the chapter, it says in verse 2, so it's still in ch chapter 22, verse 2, it says that the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some ways to get rid of Jesus. These are two religious parties that don't normally agree and normally dislike each other, now agreeing in getting rid of Jesus. And then throughout the story, we have different groups of people just against Jesus as well. We see the, the religious high priest questioning him, the temple guards arresting him, the leaders of the Pharisee group accusing him. Chapter 23, we see Pilate and, and Herod, the local government at the time, getting involved. We see the Roman soldiers mocking him. The Jewish servants asking Peter if he's with Jesus. And even later on, we'll see the crowd yelling, crucify him. So the Jews, his own people, the Romans are against him. The aristocrats and servants are against him. The religious leaders and secular government are against him. Clearly, the text is trying to say that every kind of culture, every possible class, every possible race was against Jesus at this time. It's when darkness reigns, that everybody was contributing to the crucifixion, rich or poor, religious or ir irreligious, Jew or Gentile, everybody in the story is putting Jesus on the cross. Simply put, the world was united in putting him to death. And we also said a couple of weeks ago, it was part of the plan that Jesus was not a victim of injustice. He planned his own death. That even in, in the story, you can see how this was part of the plan. Because in Luke chapter 18, so going back a couple of chapters, Luke 18, verses 32 to 33, Jesus gave this prediction. He said that he will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. But now in chapter 22, verse 63, we see the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. But do you see the irony in that? Do you see what's happening there? They're saying, if you are a great prophet, then predict this, slap. They're, they're asking, if you are God, why are you so weak? Why are you so helpless? They're saying, this, is, this isn't how God works. God is not helpless like you. God doesn't allow things like this to happen. If God is with you, then he will, be, he, he will be letting you out of this awful situation. You can't be the prophet of God. But do you see the irony? Jesus prophesied that the Romans will be hitting him and making fun of him. And right there and then, the Romans are doing exactly what he predicted. So that proved that he is the great prophet, that he is indeed the son of God. While... They were mocking him that he can't be the son of God. That they're, because they're making fun of his lack of powers at that time, proved his power. And they could not see it, but their mockery just proved themselves wrong. And, you know, we see this throughout the passage that he predicts Judas' betrayal. He predicts Peter's denial even the, 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 the rooster crowing, he predicted his own suffering. He predicted his death. He predicted exactly when, exactly how, and exactly where. 
and not just before his death, because we have passages like Isaiah 50 verse 6 that says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. So Jesus was not just predicting his own death at the time. The Bible has been predicting it for thousands of years ahead. And Jesus was merely fulfilling what was planned for the Messiah. But here's the application today. See, at that time, all they can see is weakness. They can see defeat. All they're saying is that he can't be God because God doesn't work like this. He can't be a prophet because God's prophet is a lot more powerful than this. He can't be the savior because he can't even save himself. And because they were too busy making fun of him, they're actually missing out on the greatest act of salvation at the time. They are missing out on the, the greatest demonstration of power and love in the history of the world because they, it didn't fit into their little expectation of God, what God is supposed to be like. And you see, that's exactly how the world reacts today. Like, how, how is the world mocking Christianity today? How is the world making fun of Jesus today? They're saying the same thing. If there is a God, then he will not allow the earthquake in Turkey to happen. If God is real, then he would stop the war in Ukraine. If God is real, then why would he allow all these things happening in my life? But see, the cross didn't make sense back then. And we can look back to that and say, oh, yeah, that was part of the great plan. Which means that there are so many other things that's happening now that doesn't make sense now to us, right? But it doesn't mean that it's pointless. That there are many things in the world right now that doesn't make sense, but it doesn't mean that it has no meaning nor purpose. See, there is a natural spiritual blindness in the world simply because we create our own understanding of who God is. And so the world is mocking Jesus today like everyone else in the story because he doesn't fit into people's understanding of what God should be doing in our world. Yet Jesus was doing exactly what he should be doing. He was sticking to what he planned to do. That at that time he could have. He could have saved himself. He could have sent fire from heaven and consumed the Roman soldiers at that time. But if he did that, then he would have saved himself, like people might have believed at that time, but salvation won't be possible for us today. Just because God's way doesn't make sense to you right now, don't start mocking because you might miss out on the greatest salvation in history. Just because God is not doing what you expect him to do, don't start mocking because you might miss out on the bigger plan and purpose that he has for you. It's like when your plane takes off during a thunderstorm and there's a lot of turbulence, there's, it's dark, there's a lot of fear, you're scared. But as soon as you get over the cloud, you realize that the sun is still shining high and bright. No matter how dark the storm clouds are above you, do not forget that the sun still shines bright above the clouds. And see, everyone was against him. Every culture, every class, every nation was against him. But then in the book of, the book of Acts, we start to see Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, masters and slaves, united together, but no longer against Jesus, but for Jesus. 
And the same reason that this morning we have Asians and Australians and Middle Eastern and white collars and blue collars, young and old, all mixed in, all united together because Jesus has turned the unity of the darkness at that time into a unity of light. That people that used to be in the dark are now called light of the world. Why? Because Jesus ticked to his plan. That's the first point, darkness in the world. But secondly, we can also see from this passage, darkness in our hearts, darkness in our lives. Because the other thing that is clear from the story is that Jesus' closest friends also abandoned him, and one of them actually betrayed him. And let's look at Judas for a second here, because the most common question asked is, why did Judas do it? Why would he betray his friend? Well, some say that, well, because of his greed, that Jesus was after, Judas was after money. And so when he saw the chance to sell Jesus off, he did it for 30 silver coins. But I don't think it's that simple. Because remember, remember that Judas was, was with Jesus for three years at least, that he could have betrayed him any time for money. But he committedly followed him for that long, for three long years. And during that time, he listened to the sermons. He served in Jesus' ministry. He prayed with him. He fellowshiped with him. He gave up so much of his time, his, resor his resources, and his energy for Jesus. But I believe the, the, the reason he stayed during all that time because Jesus was so useful to him. Think about it, that Jesus was building this, this following. He was amassing fame. He was leading a, a new movement. He saw Jesus doing lots of miracles. He heard Jesus talking about a new kingdom. He knew all the, the benefits he can get if he follows Jesus. And even in John chapter 12, verse 6, it says that Judas was stealing money from the bag. Now, it's not, the, it's not just greed because he's, it's telling us that he was doing ministry because it was beneficial for him. That he's doing religion because it's useful. And so once Judas starts to realize that Jesus is no longer useful to him, he sells him off. That Judas follows Jesus when it was profitable. He's a follower when there's power and there's prosperity. But as soon as it looks like there's, it's going to cost him, he sells Jesus off. That's the sin of, of Judas. And see, what it means today is that the way you can tell a difference, whether you are a real follower or a false one, is when things are going well in your life, that you're happy with your faith, you're, you're happy serving in church, you're happy with Jesus, but as soon as he's no longer useful to you, as soon as you realize that it's really going to cost you a lot to obey him, that it's going to really cost you to stay with Jesus, you sell him off. That people often think that Judas didn't have enough faith, and so he betrayed Jesus. But the point is, Judas never had any faith at all because he never made any kind of surrender. He was not there to serve God. He wanted God to serve him. And see, in the end, there are only two kinds of religion. One religion says that because if, if there is a God, then you need and you would want to serve him. Or the other religion will say that you want God to serve you. And there's really no middle ground. You're, you're either because you, you want to surrender your life to God and allow him to be in charge, or you're only here because you want God to surrender to you, because you want to be in charge. You want God to do something for you. And here's the scary part in the passage. See, during the Passover meal, when they were eating, Jesus mentioned that one of them is going to betray him. 
And the disciples had no idea who he was. In fact, they were all asking Jesus, is it me? Meaning they were not even sure if it's not them. The point is that you, you won't even realize that you're not that committed. That, that you're so blinded by your sin that you don't realize you're only here for the benefits of, of, of what God is giving you. And you're not here for God. The scary part is that in church, everyone looks exactly the same. That there's a Judas, there can be a Judas in our midst, and yet people are here reading the Bible, serving in church, saying their prayers, following the Ten Commandments. But once they realize that God is no longer useful to them, they'll be more than happy to give it all up and sell it off. And like Judas, you, you seem committed. You might even be the pastor of the church, but you're only here for the benefits. See, that's the darkness in our own lives, that we are so blinded with our wrong motives that even we don't even know why we're following Jesus. And the passage is warning us also that don't be so quick to say, well, not me, I will be loyal to the end. I'm not here for the money, I'm here because I'm committed. I'm ready to go all the way for you, Jesus. Because do you know who else said that? Not me, Lord, I'm ready to die for you. Peter. See, if Judas was only using Jesus, Peter, on the other hand, was so full of himself that he's so overconfident, he's certain that he won't fail. But what's his assurance? How can he be so sure? Because he was so full of his own pride. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, I'm definitely not Judas, then there's a good chance that you might be Peter. So quick to speak when everything is fine, but when faced with challenges, you'll be so quick to deny that you'll be denying Jesus just to save your own skin. But here's the difference between Peter and Judas. They're both selfish. They're both doing things for themselves. Judas is using Jesus for his own benefit. Peter is overconfident of his own faith that he thinks he can save himself. But here's the difference. Peter wept. Peter began to, to repent. Peter realized that he's not all that he says he is. He realized that he has nothing to offer, not even his commitment to the Lord. He realized that he's not strong, he's not courageous, he's not even loyal. And by weeping, he realized that he needed to rely on Jesus. See, Peter was put in a situation where it was revealed to him how weak he was. And when that ha happened, the text says that Peter remembered what Jesus said. It means that, that he remembered that Jesus not only predicted his denial, but offered his love and his grace even before the denial. He realized that Jesus loved him, not because that he was loyal to Jesus, but because Jesus loved him despite his sinfulness. See, it's telling us every single one of us has this darkness and blindness in our hearts. And we might think we are loyal followers of Jesus, but unless we truly understand the love and the commitment Jesus has for us, it will not change us. That you need to realize that Jesus loves you, not because of your love for him, but despite of your sin, despite of your failure, despite of your weakness. And when you realize that, then and only then, you will start to repent and weep like Peter. And only then can you really see the real cost of his love for you. But you might ask, well, what's this cost of his love? 
our third point. Lastly, darkness in eternity. See, when the world was going against Jesus, his friends was betraying and abandoning him, that wasn't even the worst part. Because what was really painful for him is when he was praying. It's when his father abandons him. Verse 44, it says that being in anguish, in Greek, it says being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. He says that when he was in agony and he started sweating blood, some commentator says that Jesus was sweating blood as a figure of speech because it says like. Others say that it is possible that it can be a medical condition to sweat blood. Now, whether that is figuratively or literally, the point is Jesus was in so much distress. He was in so much mental pain. He was in agony while he was praying. And notice that throughout the gospel, Jesus will normally go out to pray and after his prayer, he'll feel better, that he'll have a better condition after prayer. But this time, look what's going on. He prays, but he ends up in agony. What was he so afraid of? Why does he feel so stressed? What, what, what is it that he was in so much pain? What, was he scared of dying? And why did prayer somehow made it worse? One biblical scholar, William Lane, comments this in his commentary. He said, the dreadful sorrow and anxiety of Jesus was not just shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It was rather the horror of the one who lived holy for the Father and who came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him. Lane is saying Jesus was not simply scared of the torture and death that he was about to endure. He was in pain because for the very first time in his life, he went to see the Father for comfort, but instead he started to experience his rejection. Because you know what, what darkness and evil is? Darkness is the, the absence of light. You know, total darkness is when there's not even a hint of light. And in the same way, evil is the absence of, of God's goodness, of God's mercy and love. And when Jesus turns to his father, he was looking for his goodness, for his mercy and love. But instead, he started to experience what he would experience on the cross. Not just physical pain and torture, but the pain of what it's like to be removed from the goodness and love of the father. He started to experience the cup of God's wrath towards sin. See, the world rejecting Jesus, he was able to bear that. His disciples rejecting him, it was more painful, but he was able to bear that. But now the father is rejecting his son. And he says that he was in agony. Because here's the truth. The closer you are to someone, the stronger the relationship is the, the, that you have with someone, the closer the friendship is or the bond of love, the more painful it is to be rejected, right? If a colleague that you don't really know rejects you in work, during work, you might not care. If your friend that you've, you've known since high school rejects you, that's a lot more painful. If your spouse who you absolutely love for so many years rejects you, it's devastating, it's crushing. Now imagine what it was like for the son of God who is in, who's in perfect love and unity and relationship with the father for all eternity before the beginning of time, imagine that kind of love and unity and suddenly on this night be rejected. It's agonizing that the greatest 
marriage in the world does not even compare to the relationship that the father has with the son. And this is why Jesus at this time, he, he really just had a foretaste of that rejection in the garden. And so what was his prayer? Verse 42, Father, if you are willing, take this rejection, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. He's saying, I don't want to go through this, but I'm willing to do it in order to obey your will, Father. You know what's the cost to save you? That Jesus faced the rejection of his father. Jesus Christ faced hell so that one day you can receive heaven. Jesus Christ faced the, reject, the rejection of his father so that you can be reconciled back to him. Jesus Christ faced the wrath of God so that you can receive the love of God. He experienced death, even eternal death in some way, so that you can receive eternal life. He died a death that you should have died. He faced the judgment you should have faced. So that when you realize that, that when you realize his sacrifice for you, his love for you, and it makes you weep like Peter, then and only then you can receive this wonderful grace. That was his plan. He walked darkness by himself so that you can walk in the light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you. We cannot comprehend what it feels for you to reject your own son. Like a mother rejecting their own child. Even beyond that, O oh Lord, we cannot imagine and comprehend the pain that you had to endure, O oh Lord. And Lord Jesus, we cannot comprehend the rejection that you have received from your loving father. And yet, help us to realize, O oh Lord, so that we can understand the cost that you have taken for our sake. The sacrifice that you had to make just so that we can live in the light. Help us, O oh Lord, to live in this light this week. This we pray in your name. Amen.